Broadcasting to the world, world, from both sides of Washington State, you're listening to Horse Racing Banter, a podcast created for both the serious and not so serious horse racing fans. And now, here are your hosts, Mark Metcalf and Eric Johnson. Welcome back, race fans. This is episode 35 of the Horse Racing Banter podcast. We have a very special show for you today. I'm Eric Johnson, one of your co-hosts. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you, sir. Very big day today. We are very, very pleased to have with us today Hall of Fame and multiple Eclipse Award winning jockey, Chris McCarran. Chris, welcome to Horse Racing Banter. Thank you very much, guys. Pleasure to be here. There's uh, there's just so much we'd like to let our listeners know about your remarkable career. Uh, we're definitely going to hit some of the highlights and uh, some special nuggets of interest, but we just don't have time to cover everything, Chris. So if we leave out something that uh, you feel was very important that we should have covered, feel free to jump in. But all apologies in advance for uh, for missing anything that um, that you uh, you think we should have covered today. So. Oh, all right. I will. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Chris, tell us about how you broke into the business and the good fortune you had to meet a very special trainer and true horseman right from the beginning. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, my brother Greg, who's seven years my elder, started riding races at, in Boston at Suffolk Downs um, in 1969. And I was a... Uh, Let's see. I was a sophomore in high school when uh, when he started, and I would get out of school in the north end of Boston uh, around three o'clock in the afternoon, and I would get on the train and go two stops, or may- maybe might have been three stops, on the MTA um, to go to Suffolk Downs, which had its own train station, train stop, and I would get off the train hike on over to the grandstand and I would have to sneak in because back then if you were younger than 18 you needed an adult to accompany you into the track mm-hmm. and I was a little on the shy side and rather than asking somebody to chaperone me I I would climb the fence uh and and watch the last few races that Greg was riding and uh, I found it to be a very exciting endeavor, and so when uh, when I got in, when I was uh, a, a junior in high school, that summer between my junior and senior year, Greg got me a job with the gentleman that who you previously mentioned. Uh, taught he taught Greg how to ride. He was very well known for bringing out young apprentices, very successful uh, jockeys. And his name was Odie Cleland. And Odie put me to work that summer as a hot walker. And I absolutely fell in love with working around horses. So it was really a matter of fate that I was introduced. We There was no place around where I grew up where there was any horseback riding. So I, I didn't have any experience whatsoever. 
So um, I got I got started and I went back and graduated high school in 1972. And as soon as I graduated, I was I was on the track walking horses and I eventually graduated to being a groom, then an exercise rider. And uh, a couple of years later, I started riding races. Yeah, and in addition to the uh, brothers McCarran, uh, Odie had another famous pupil, didn't he? He sure did. Probably a lot more famous than I'll ever be. That was um, Eddie R. Carroll. Yeah. Well, and then uh, in 1973, uh, you were witness to a very special Preakness Stakes, particularly an awesome uh, and famous portion of that race. <laughs> Tell That's us about okay. that. I'll pick it up. Um, that was a Pimlico. So in 1973, um, you were witness to a very special Preakness Stakes, particularly um, uh, an awesome and famous portion of the ra- that race. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, you bet. Um, I was an exercise rider in 1973, and I happened to be at Pimlico um, working for my boss that, that afternoon at Secretariat ran, and, and uh, it was the most impressive uh, race that I, one of the most impressive at the time, it was the most impressive race I'd ever seen, uh, because Secretariat was last going under the wire the first time. And as he turned down the backstretch at Pimlico, uh, that's where I was located. I was, I was sta- in, uh, up on the balcony of one of the barns uh, along the backstretch. And by the time he got over to us, he was pulling Ron Turcott to the lead and just um, totally <laughs> decimated the the field. And yeah, that was a, that's a memory I'll never forget. I bet, I bet. I have a a gift that I gave Mark uh, some time ago um, with uh, his wife and and um, my wife, where um, you know there's there's that famous picture where he's looking looking backwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at, uh, in 1974 at age 19, your first full year as a jockey, you won 547 races to beat Sandy Holly's record of, uh, 515 that he set the, the previous year, um, which led to your first Eclipse Award for Outstanding Apprenticeship Jockey. Um, so why don't you give us a little, uh, overview of that, uh, portion of your racing career? Okay. Um, I rode my first race in 1974 on um, January 24th at Bowie Racecourse in Maryland. And uh, on 10 months later, and about two weeks later, I I rode my first winner at Bowie on a horse called Erezev. And uh, it's, I was a little bit disheartened the morning of, of that particular day because it was snowing like crazy at Bowie. And I thought sure that they were going to um, cancel the races that day, but they, they, they bladed all the snow to the outside fence. And um, I was lucky enough to get on a horse that went right to the lead going a mile and 16th. And he went wire to wire. Wow. So, um, does Sandy ever give you a bad time for uh, breaking his record that year? <laughs> uh, yeah, he likes to tease me every once in a while, but uh, all in all in good fun. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of him, um, you two share a link with one of the great figures in Canadian racing, Mr. E.P. Taylor. Um, and in 1977, you won the uh, Kentucky Oats aboard Sweet Alliance. Um, you've rode some pretty outstanding fillies and mares in your career, including Sweet Alliance, Bayakoa, Lady's Secret. Um, do you have a favorite of any of those? I I do. Um, my favorite, the favorite mare that I ever rode, her name was Flawlessly. And um, she was owned and bred by the same people who owned Affirmed. She was actually by Affirmed out of one of the uh, Wolfson's uh, Harborview Farm mares. And um, she was so special. She was primarily grass. She did win uh, She did win a stake on the dirt when she was a two-year-old at, at Aqueduct. But um, she bled that day. Um, but actually, I cannot remember if she won or not. But anyway, Dickie Dutro was training her at the time. And when she bled... They uh, sent her out to California, which uh, was a, a jurisdiction that um, allowed Lasix. Yeah, and yeah. New York, New York hadn't um, adapted to that yet, and so they, uh, the Wolfsons, sent flawlessly out to Charlie Whittingham, one of the greatest trainers of all time, and she won. I won nine Grade One races on her. Um, wow, she was utterly. Uh, amazing. And she was the kindest, sweetest thing. Um, a child could ride her. I was just a passenger, uh, a very fortunate passion passenger to be able to have them out on her for the better part of three years. So that was, that was a, a, um, period of time. Did you then ultimately kind of like follow her out to to California because it was around 1978 when uh, I think on your birthday that you um, uh, made uh, the pilgrimage to California. That is correct. It was on my birthday. And uh, no, I didn't follow her. She she actually I'd like to say she <laughs> followed me. <laughs> ah, good. Good. Because she she went out to the West Coast. I want to say around 92 um, something somewhere in there, 90, maybe 91. But, um, yeah, the reason they, they sent her to California other than the Lasix issue was that, um, she was, uh, a turf mare and there were many more opportunities for her to run on the grass at, um, Hollywood, Santa Anita and Del Mar. But, um, yeah, she was, she was very special. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you mentioned that, um, you know, you were you were uh, having to climb the fence to get into Suffolk, and up until '78, I was underage also, and my track uh, locally was Long Acres, and we used to do the same thing. We had found a few ways that we could, you know, sneak in because we never we we had our driver's license, but we didn't want to drag our parents or you know whatever out there, so we would. We would sneak into Long Acres to to run uh, or to watch all the races, and um, I, I just remember that era, you know, as really being kind of the the golden age in, in my lifetime of horse racing. And you were in Southern California getting started. Why don't you talk a little bit about that time and what what you um, experienced at Santa Anita and Del Mar and Hollywood? 
Well, I was um, I was leaving a very comfortable environment, uh, that being Maryland racing. Uh, I was uh, leading rider there at Laurel, Pimlico, and Bowie um, countless times, and um, I I felt I was ready to test the deep end of the pool by uh, plying my trade on the West Coast against the likes of Bill Shoemaker, Lafitte Pinkai, Sandy, as you mentioned, uh, Daryl McCargan, a number of other. Uh, there were when I when I first moved to the West Coast, there were eight jockeys in the uh, jocks room at the time that w- went on to be uh, become Hall of Famers. So it was a it was a very deep pool of talent, and I was um, I wasn't apprehensive. I wasn't um, anxious or anything. I was excited beyond description because I was, I knew I was riding against some of the best jockeys in the world. Yeah. And so, um, but I went up there with a great deal of confidence and we, uh, our business, uh, uh, picked up pretty much right away. So I was fortunate enough to have a good agent at the time who was able to get me going. And so, uh, I had, I had very little difficulty getting started. It must not have, because in 1980, you picked up your second Eclipse Award, right? That's right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Did you ever make it up to Long Acres to run in the Long Acres Mile? You know, that's one regret I have. I wish I had made it up there. I heard it was, I heard it was a beautiful racetrack in a beautiful setting. But invariably, when the Long Acres Mile was scheduled, you know, your biggest race, uh, there was always a big grade, a grade one at, at Del Mar at the time. And yeah. although, although my agent had opportunities to accept a mount in the Long Acre Mile, it was always uh, a business decision to stay home at Del Mar. I see. I see. Yeah, it was interesting because we we had our local favorites, you know, with Gary Bay's riding and a few, few of the other um, jockeys that, you know, went on to some decent uh, Russell was up here for a while. And, uh, and then the California invaders, as we call them would, would come up. Um, even Bill Shoemaker came up on bad and big in uh, 78 and won the mile. And it was, it was a great time. I mean, the track was packed you know, it's in August, it's full, full regalia, and it's just great memories. Right. So in 1983, a uh, very important horse came into your life by the name of John Henry. Um, tell us uh, how you ended up with the mount on him in the 1983 American uh, Handicap at Hollywood Park. Well, John had sustained a minor injury at the end of uh, 1982. Um, and Bill Shoemaker was was riding him at the time, and when when John made his return to the races, Shoemaker was and his agent they were faced with a decision either to accept the mount on a new, fresh, really good horse from France called the Wonder, and or or to stick with John Henry. Well, John was eight at the time, and the Wonder was only four, and so Shoemaker's agent opted to uh, go with Whittingham and ride the Wonder 
and John Henry came open, and I was fortunate enough that Ron McAnally and his owners, Sam and Dorothy Rubin, selected me to be his pilot. So, um, yeah, the first time I rode him was in the American Handicap, and uh, he won that day. And, boy, we went on to have two really, really fun years in 83 and 84. Wow. Wow. What a, what an amazing horse. Um, Mark's having technical difficulties, uh, Chris. So it's you and me probably from here out. He's listening, but uh, he can't hear you, but we're going to carry on. I would love to continue this conversation. Um, he was going to read a, a wonderful excerpt by jo about John Henry, but uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll add that to our website. Um, so in 85, you won your first Breeders' Cup race, the Sprint Aboard Precisionist. Um, and um, Precisionist was a fast horse. I think you won in 108.4. Um, what was it like to ride ride him? He was amazing. That horse could run five-eighths of a mile and 55 and change. Oh, and, wow. <laughs> and he won, he won two big races going a mile and a quarter. He won the, the swap stakes at Hollywood Park in under two minutes and he won the Strube at Santa Anita Park. As a matter of fact, he was the first horse in a long time to have won the uh the Strube series. He won the Malibu going seven furlongs. He won the San Fernando going a mile and eighth. And he won wow. the he won the Strube going a mile and a quarter. He was a special, special animal. I I uh He's he's one of my top five for sure. He he was amazing and he could run on the grass. He won stakes on the grass, uh, ran on dirt in the mud. Didn't matter. As um, Jack Vanberg, one of the greatest trainers of all time, would used to say about a good horse, this guy can run on broken glass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we've we've been uh, uh, pondering lately the the notion that uh, you know. How, how does a jockey know to let one of these fast horses just run instead of, you know, kind of, you can see sometimes um, the last race Cattle River, I don't know if you follow on the Derby Trail right now, was really tugging at its jockey. And we, we've just been curious about how you make a decision on whether the horse can just go. Maybe you can give us some insights on that. Well, you know what, that's a, that's a very good point because getting back to precisionist, um, I was, I was getting ready to ride him, um, when he was a three-year-old, I, I was, he won, he won the Stro Stroop series as a four-year-old, but as, as a three-year-old, I was riding him in the San Rafael stakes going a mile at Santa Anita. And his trainer, Ross Fenstermaker said to me, you know what? We've been trying to rate this horse by holding him, trying to keep him, keep him under wraps. He said, I just want you to let him run today. And if he gets beat, it's my fault. Well, he went 22, 45, nine and change. He ran a mile in, in 135 flat or something like that. And, uh, it was, and he won for fun. It was, uh, it was the right strategy to uh, just go ahead and let him do his thing rather than fight him and try to get him to go slow. He didn't know what slow was, and he didn't like it when I tried to make him go slow. He, all he wanted to do was run. And so uh, that's, how we, uh, that's how we approached every race after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also, the amazing thing was, Ross did a fantastic job preparing him for the Breeders' Cup at Aqueduct. It was his first start in like eight months. 
And uh, it, coming off the bench like that to beat the fastest sprinters in the country at Aqueduct was that that was an amazing feat. A great job by Ross. And uh, he beat a good field. The horse that was second in the race, Smile, came back and won the Breeders' Cup Sprint at Santa Anita the very next year. So that gives you a good barometer to what, what kind of horses he was able to beat sprinting. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Uh, following a kind of a timeline, so in uh, night, uh, on October 9th, uh, 16th, 1986, you took a really bad spill at Santa Anita, which kept you out of the 86 um, Breeders' Cup. But it did give you some booth time with the uh, great Dick Enberg. What was it like working with him? That was amazing. Wow. What a perfectionist Dick was. Uh, it was it was so – I had so much pleasure uh, being able to sit in the in the box with him at Santa Anita with the NBC national camera, cameras on us. And to watch him do apply his trade was amazing. It, he was – he was so good at what he did and – I learned a great deal from from that experience, uh, you know, how to how to sit on that side of the camera. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not easy and he made it look so smooth and just almost like butter, right? <laughs> yeah, he was he was great. You know, Chris, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to break our conversation into two parts. I'm going to say this is part one and I'm going to have a sign on and off and uh, we'll pick up part two with Mark um, right after this. All right. All right. Thank you. Broadcasting to the world from both sides of Washington state. You've been listening to the Horse Racing Banter Podcast with Mark Metcalf and Eric Johnson. Have a question or comment for Mark or Eric? Please visit their website at www.horseracingbanter.com. Until next time, we'll see you at the payout window.